Manufacturing Descent since 1996, live from Hangover Country. This is hell on today's show. We got some depoliticization to talk about, rotten history, and how we're supposed to be voting when we vote in November. Mainstream media fans, on today's show, mainstream media fans will complain that politics is in everything. And they want to work toward erasing them in any way they can. They complain about Colin Kirkpatrick. Kaepernick, Colin Kaepernick taking a knee during the national anthem as politicizing football without recognizing that the anthem itself, the flying of the American flag, the military jet flyovers, the color guard, it's all very, very political. So what does it mean to depoliticize? What happens when the political is taken out of, well, everything, as neoliberalism attempts to do? What happens to the will and agency of the people to have any voice in determining their f- future when we experience depoliticization? We'll find out in a few when we have the return of Assad Haider, who wrote the Viewpoint magazine article on depoliticization. Assad was on our show back in June 2018 to talk about his book, Mistaken Identity, Anti-Racism and the Struggle Against Against white supremacy, which we chose as one of our favorite books of 2018. Assad is a founding editor at Viewpoint Magazine, an investigative journal of contemporary politics. You can find out more about that publication at viewpointmag.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, how's your weekend? That was pretty good. I'm uh, slowly, slowly encouraging my dog to get closer and closer to peeing on my neighbor's Elizabeth Warren sign. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping she stays in the race after till after uh, Super Tuesday so I can. We're almost there. Almost there. Are these the people who fly the American flag? No. Oh, okay. Do they have any signs on their front lawn yet? No, just Elizabeth Warren. Oh, those people. No, I'm kind of worried about that. Yeah. But uh, right. So what I'm doing, uh, that's canvassing. Oh, that's see. organizing. <laughs> my dog is so, canvassing the neighbor. Welcome, everybody. <laughs> Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Helen. Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is, ooh, slurpy. (laughs) According to an article at KLAQ, the website of El Paso's Best Rock, a DJ who has the weekday 10 to 2 shift writes, first, arrange to be off the day after drinking. It won't cure your hangover, but it will make life a little easier to deal with. Next, drink a lot of water while drinking. Eat throughout the evening. Avoid super sweet drink. Avoid super sweet drinks. Mm, continue. Get plenty of sleep after drinking. <laughs> Those will help minimize the hangover, but do you want to wipe it out completely? My secret weapon is a Slurpee. Not Icy's or other similar products. It has to be a Slurpee. Preferably cherry, but Coke works too. If you're dying tomorrow, try one. You'll thank me for it. So that makes week, this week's hangover cure. 
a Slurpee. I got a degree in Slurpology once by getting by having ten Slurpees and continuing to have the guy punch my card so he would give me a diploma that says I had a degree in Slurpology. Now, of course, I did this when I was a little kid. I was in my mid-twenties. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong. This is hell. Have you ever met anyone who only made money by gambling? Not by being a bookie, but betting, by prognosticating. And not some game of skill like poker craps, despite those also always being fixed for the house, but by predicting the future. Or how about anyone who knows exactly what everyone wants, and because of this keen ability, they spend their days doing nothing but making money hand over fist, accurately foreseeing upcoming events on such a consistent basis, they make a living as a seer of some sort. I know I have not met such a person, and my dad started teaching me about gambling when I was in second grade because he enjoyed, at times, betting on college and pro football, as well as Going to the track, horses, not dogs, but it was a racetrack that Vegas would refuse to accept bets, believing the races were not quite legit. I've been around gambling, and I myself participate in betting, but to a very, 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 very small degree. Lotto, brackets, fantasy football, and baseball pools, squares. The kind of penny-ante stuff a small-time person like myself can afford. I've known bookies. My father's best friend was someone from the old Chandler Park neighborhood on Detroit's east side. But my pop's friend did not only make money as a betting person. He had another job as a delivery person that put him in a great position to collect and pay off bets. Without that job as a delivery man, he could not have survived. Gambling was merely supplemental income, and despite being a bookie himself, he didn't always end up in the black every year. In fact, more times than not, as he would say, when he was not having a good weekend of bookmaking. Charlie, it's oven time, as in putting one's head in an oven to off themselves, or box time, as in a coffin. His humor was grim, and I'm betting working as a bookie was too, especially a middleman bookie, because, you know, you got to work for a bigger bookie, as most with any modicum of success do. You have to make certain the guy above you will pay so you can pay back downstream to your clients. You need to have somebody doing that kind of bankrolling if you want to guarantee that every weekend you can cover cover all your bets, get your juice or vig or whatever you call your taste, and your boss gets theirs too. The whole game is to get as much action as possible going on any content not contest because volume makes money. That is, the more fees you can collect, like in financialization, the more uh, fees you can collect through VIG, juice, whatever, the more you can profit. Problem is, lots of bookies like my dad's friends start believing the lines and become gamblers themselves. And as any good drug dealer knows, the best, most successful criminal is the kind that does not taste their own stuff. So gambling's a racket, a grift, a con. It's nearly a pyramid scheme. It's not about anything other than making money, and you do that by getting people to play along with the hoax that you might actually get rich off this industry that is little more than sleight of hand. Gambling was probably the first financialization, money doing nothing but making money and providing jobs for people in the money-making industry that doesn't contribute anything else to society but fostering greed and hoarding. You ever notice how casinos are, while not aesthetically pleasing, clearly expensive in their awful taste? Ever notice how you never find a casino in a single wide? By the way, if you do, do not go in. A casino in a manufactured home has got to have all sorts of demons in that 15 by 72 foot tin of inhumanity. Gambling is a dead end for your money, and in that alley with no exit, 
What you worked hard to learn is stolen by machines meant to take everything they can from you while they distract you with entertainment. Yet you still go home telling your friends how you had a great time despite the fact you may have to be paying next month's smartphone bill a little bit late. And now in this election season, suddenly the Democratic National Committee, MSNBC, the Clinton wing of the party, the traitors who embraced Reagan and neoliberalism while turning their backs on the working class poor, the elderly and people of color. Because look, who are they going to vote for? The Republicans? Besides, they don't have any money like Rich Whitey does. And you know, money. You know, that disgusting part of the Democratic leadership, they want everyone who might vote in the Democratic presidential primary to act like gamblers, like they're gambling. Like as if they somehow know who can or will win in November. The Democratic Party, CNN, and every news outlet is now asking, are you going to vote for the person who you agree with the most or the person who you think has the best chance of beating President Trump in November? The implication, if not explicit, statement is there is no way the person you agree with the most will actually win in November. So who are you voting for instead? Therefore, you better settle now for who you think others like the most, as if you have some innate ability to read the minds of everyone else who's voting. Of course, within this context, the media has determined who is the person who can win and who is the person you actually want as president. And the outlet telling you what you better do this weekend was, well, I mean, when it comes to condescending liberalism, you know where to go. On MSNBC this weekend, they featured that force against humanity who believes the lives of others are disposable as long as his side gets to win, as was shown in a fantastic documentary, Our Brand is Crisis, that clearly a lizard being known on this planet in this life as James Carville. Okay, David Ickes was right once and only once about the powers that be actually being lizard king aliens. Big deal. So he was correct once. I'm telling you the rest of the time he's just being anti-Semitic. The evil Carvel incarnate surfaced from his lair deep down in the inferno to order us all to follow the, his sign of the beast that says, whatever you do, do not vote for Bernie Sanders, you goddamn idiot. Yeah, who knew that someone who worked for racist dictators could be mean and cruel? By the way, make certain you do not see the fictionalized comedy of our Brandon crisis. The original documentary is about the political campaign marketing tactics by Carville's firm, Greenberg Carville Shroom, and their tactic is create crisis even if you have to make it up yourself. Make the people feel as if they're supporting one candidate over the other will lead to something awful, threatening them into voting for a far less transformative leader. Sound familiar? I don't know why, but this brilliant documentary on Evo's election in Bolivia revealing how the Clinton administration apparatchiks were running the campaign of Evo's fascist opponent, interfering in Bolivia's election. For whatever reason, they re-released the film as a comedy with Billy Bob Thornton and Sandra Bullock that makes the Clintonites as some kind of flawed, hilarious heroes. Carvel emerged from the depths of Mordor to the delight of whoever the hell has the low ethical standards to work at MSNBC anymore that he was talking to, and he was explaining to their delight that Joe Biden is the only candidate who can beat Trump in November. I actually went online to find the interview I stumbled across Saturday night and discovered it was Brian Williams, Rachel Maddow, another MSNBC anchor, anchor and someone, I think the Washington Post, Eugene Robbins and whatever on the dais, I, I don't know, he and the random MSNBC anchor have nothing to do with what I'm talking about, so whoever. When Brian Williams announces that James Carville is joining them live, although with his 
vampiric appearance. I'm really not sure if Carvel is alive or the living dead. Live or whatever state he was in via video stream, everybody cheers and laughs as if they're all supposed to be in love with James Carvel or like he is nothing but some kind of entertainer that makes us all laugh. Not the evil political manipulator he is, a man who believes money is the root of all good in the world and screw the poor, whether they are in Bolivia fighting for their lives or in the U.S. desperately struggling for theirs because of Clinton-era policies, the kind of policies Carville and MSNBC unbelievably call a success. And Rachel Maddow had the biggest smile of all of them, erasing every horrible thing the Clintons ever did, normalizing neoliberalism. By the way, in case you missed it, there was a review of FEC documents done by the site realsludge.com, so you know it was comprehensive, that showed 94% of Comcast executives, you know, Comcast, the people who own MSNBC, Comcast executives and vice presidents' contributions to Democratic presidential candidates have gone to... Joe Biden, quoting the article in addition, Comcast top lobbyist David Cohen co-hosted Biden's kickoff fundraiser in April of last year, and he is listed as a bundler for the campaign, meaning that he has collected at least $25,000 in contributions from others for Biden. Meanwhile, MSNBC has provided Biden with a lot of positive coverage. A June 2019 analysis of data from the Global Database of Events, Language and Tone by Columbia Journalism Review's public editor for MSNBC, Maria Bustillos, found that Biden had received the bulk of the station's 2020 election coverage. So Carvel goes on Biden funding MSNBC and gives this tirade about how he knows Biden has a better chance to beat Trump in November, somehow being absolutely certain that Biden will not do something embarrassing between now and the July convention in Milwaukee, or that nothing humiliating from Biden's past will be revealed. How does Carvel know who has a better chance of beating Trump in November? What is his proof, his evidence? The betting lines. Carvel was citing a betting line that I know exists, which rates Biden as the candidate with the best chance to be elected in November that is not named Donald Trump. Now, I'm certain this actually happened, that these odds actually exist. But when I found the video online, it immediately stops at the point where... Carvel starts going off on his rant about how betting money is going on Biden, not Sanders. And that is proof we must vote for Biden because betting lines are, in Carvel's twisted capitalist utopian worldview, an indicator of the future. And not what betting lines actually are. The odds at which oddmakers can get people to bet the most money. And that is not necessarily always an accurate depiction of reality. In fact, it never is because that is not what spreads are intended to be. Some objective reality would not be a good line. What's a good spread is reality mixed with public perception, media coverage, and a consideration of who will be betting and what choice will attract the most money at any given line and time. And that is definitely not an accurate view of reality, James Carville. And it's an accurate view of how to exploit reality, but not reality itself. What James Carville is when having faith in betting lines, believing that they are the reality, is what is known as a sucker, a chump, a mark, a pigeon, an easy target, the kind of person a casino gives free rooms and meals to just so they'll stupidly keep wasting their money. No, James, that's not how gambling lines work, and voting on who has the best odds to win is not a way to exercise democracy. In fact, it's the most depoliticizing thing you can be as a voter, taking all their own personal agency away by telling them that the person they truly believe in can't win. So what, you vote for a loser, you loser. There are so many problems with Carvel's argument that you don't even need to use any other argument other than his to prove him wrong. 
First, Bernie Sanders is leading in every betting line I could find last night. Now, as I said, I know there one does exist that shows Biden leading that Carville mentions. But in my cursory research, it appears Sanders is way ahead in odds to be the next president of the United States, beating Biden thoroughly at most online gambling sites. And Bloomberg is in a very far, farther away second in others. That said, each of those betting lines has Trump beating any rival with betting $100 on Sanders getting you in around 250 bucks. As a return on Biden, you get about $1,200 on a $100 bet. But let's go back to November 2016 on Election Day and see what the all-knowing odds, the knower of all things, the Carvel is certain insists forces us all to vote logically for Biden. Let's see how those lines were, what they were saying on Election Day 2016 at 7.58 p.m. Eastern Time on Election Day 2016, just as the first returns were coming in, Hillary Clinton was at minus $700. In other words, you have to put down 700 bucks just to win 100 Meanwhile, Donald Trump was at plus 475 as in you get that much for betting only $100. At 8.01, confidence was high and still rising as Hillary had gone to a minus 900. You have to put down $900 just to win 100 bucks, while Trump had dropped to 550. You could win $550 on a $100 bet. So, no, odds are not a good way at determining who is most likely to become president or most likely to do anything because that's not what odds are about. What they're about is landing suckers like Carvel who want to take away your political agency, depoliticizing you, silencing you, forcing you to the neoliberal submission of the Clinton wing. Carvel, in the appearance, also talked about the party's most important demographic being African-Americans without anyone saying, did you notice how blacks didn't come out to vote for Hillary in Milwaukee because the Clintons didn't do anything for their community? But that kind of ugly truth is not the f what fuels the party's propaganda tools at MSNBC as they joyously laugh when they are so delighted to see a person like Carville. Their class of white, angry, rich people or warps like to warp society to their own design to benefit them under the mistaken belief that what is best for their greedy selves must be best for all of us poor slobs who they forgot about when unemployment and interest rates are low and the Dow is high while refusing to recognize four decades of economic growth for investors at the expense of stagnant wages wages for workers, a redistribution of wealth from the working class and poor to the 1%. Gambling on your future by trying to guess who will be the most likely candidate to beat another is a dead end of oppositional politics that frames your entire understanding of politics as something defined by the person you oppose as they dictate what you are supposed to be against, completely controlling the debate, and as you voluntarily give up your decision making to the person you most detest. The question, are you going to vote for, who are you going to vote for? The person who best represents your beliefs or who you think will win is a misleading, deceptive question by corporate-controlled media that works to disempower us as capital continues to strive toward cheap, if not free, labor, whether that's through exploitation or automation. The framing is disingenuous, corrupt, trolling a, a preconceived provocation, a reaction, an answer that the media wants. It's yet another attempt to put their words in our mouths, legitimizing their wrong-headed and ill-conceived narratives. I saw this take place on NBC evening news uh, Saturday night when a reporter asked a person on the street if South Carolina is a turning point for the Biden campaign, quote unquote, turning point. And the person replied, yes, I do think it's a turning point for the campaign. Rather than asking, what do you think this means for the race moving forward or something that isn't leading the witness to s such a blatant degree, which is very, very typical. 
So in today's democracy in the United States, we are no longer expected to vote for the person we agree with most who represents us best. We are to vote strategically based on odds and polls that were oh so wrong four years ago. This isn't democracy. This is hell. Coming up, depolitization can be a very scary thing. That is, if you want to have any choice in your future. We'll also have rotten history and what's happening on the rest of this week's show. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity in Talk Radio, so clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. Neoliberalism is a project of depolitization. So you have to ask yourself, why forward a policy of depolitization? Politicization. I'm just going to have so much problem with that word throughout this whole conversation. I'm just going to muddle right through it. And what happens when we live in a depoliticized world and society? Here to help us look deeply into this theory and what it means for all of us, Assad Haider wrote the Viewpoint magazine article on depoliticization. Sheesh. Assad was on our show back in June 2018 to talk about us with his book, uh, Mistaken Identity, Anti-Racism and the Struggle Against White Supremacy, which was chosen as one of our our very favorite books of 2018. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Assad. Hey, thanks for having me on. Can you say depoliticization? I can say politicization. Why can I say that word? What am I having a problem with, Assad? I don't know. Depoliticization. It'll come. It'll come. I know. I was practicing it this weekend, too. Uh, so our global situation, you write, our global situation is one characterized by the increasing politicization of social movements, a flood of young people towards politics and a sharpening awareness of the traps of political institutions within the status quo. My claim, then, will seem somewhat paradoxical. I propose that our situation should be understood not only in terms of a resurgent radical politics, but also the attention to the perniciousness of its opposite, the frame of depoliticization. You are not using political in the popular media sense that is given a negative connotation. Why is political and politicization in that popular media sense such a negative term? Why does the media make it a pejorative? For those who may only view the word politics and politicization negatively, how can that be understood positively? Well, politics, I think, is always something that puts the existing order into question. It's always something that challenges existing institutions and represents the possibility of something different. And that's a major threat to the people who control uh, our society and who want to control our minds. Uh, They don't want that threat to exist. Um, And fortunately, it's uh, constantly appeared throughout history. It's an irrepressible force, and that's why depoliticization is necessary. Uh, This weekend, I heard a radio commentator here in town say that, so Garth Brooks was being criticized for wearing a number 20 football jersey with the name Sanders on the back, leading people in the audience at a concert in Detroit to chant Trump 2020 or four more years and that kind of thing at his concert. Again, this concert was in Detroit and the jersey was a Detroit Lions jersey at the football stadium where the Lions play and was of football Hall of Famer Barry Sanders, he was making allusion to Barry Sanders and Detroit Lions football, because that's where the stadium where he was performing. The commentator, the commentator on the radio here in town said of the overreaction to a completely misunderstood message, we're so hyper politicized right now. Is an act of yelling at a celebrity because of a misinterpreted political message and offense at that misperception 
hyper-politicization or is that de-politicization and the de-politicized politics of oppositional politics? What we have to understand is that the Sanders campaign and the movement around Sanders represents politics in the classical sense, uh, in the sense that I was talking about before. We can contrast that with the sense of the political that's just about the existing institutions and about maintaining them the way that, that they exist. Um, any reference to Sanders represents this kind of uh, emergence of a politics that's about putting the world into question. And that's why it's threatening. And that's why depoliticization is the response. When you chant Trump 2020, it's not hyperpoliticization in, in the real sense, because it's actually a depoliticization which says, we want to keep our society going the way it's going. We want to keep our institutions solid. And uh, we don't want that threat of real change. And I think that uh, the hopeful sign now uh, of the Sanders campaign isn't that people are going to say, well, we're going to incorporate people we like better into the existing institutions or something like that. It's that they're saying we can put the whole political system into question and change who gets to have a say in our society. If I start blurring this, uh, the words politics and politicization, please uh, correct me, But and I'm, I'm afraid I'm going about to do that right now, but you're right, depoliticization has its global and historical condition, the failure of the 20th century revolutions and the closure of the revolutionary form of the party and the post-revolutionary form of the socialist party state. Here in the States, you hear this all the time, that our politics are broken, that they're too bipartisan, they're too divisive. Are politics, in that sense, broken because of depoliticization? Are they inefficient? Do they not work because depoliticization's closure of the revolutionary form and ideal came about? Absolutely. And this was something that came up in the recent debate over the Cuban Revolution. And it's amazing that we're having discussions like this enter into the mainstream. Um, you know, that's an example of a revolution which said it's possible to totally change the world. And it's also an example of the attempt to change the world failing. And we have to sort of grapple seriously with this failure. Uh, the fact that we, uh, in these um, post-revolutionary societies, weren't able to overcome the state, weren't able to create new forms of life that went beyond the market. Um, we, we have to remember that these revolutions presented the idea that it's possible to do this, and we have to be faithful to that proposal. Uh, we, we also have to recognize that we need to have new ways of practicing politics and new ways of organizing ourselves to go beyond those limitations. We can't just go back to a model of the uh, socialist party that existed at the end of the 19th century. Uh, we can't um, go back to uh, just uh, a, a, an uncritical defense of the um, uh, societies that existed after socialist, socialist revolutions. We have to defend the revolutions while also understanding that we need new ideas. You're right. Let's be clear about the successes of these revolutions, the overthrow of the old regimes, the expulsion of the imperialists, and the initiation of international revolutionary processes. Why do politics need the revolutionary form to be truly effective? Can you only have change if you embrace the revolutionary form, if you politicize? Could Obama not get anything done, quote unquote, because or, or, or can the Democratic Party or even any centrist get anything done because it is not about revolutionary processes. And so you can't have real change. Well, this is something that people who are mobilizing behind Sanders need to understand right now, which is that 
unless that revolutionary threat is present, the existing institutions are resistant to transformation. When you have politicians, no matter what they represent, who enter into the state, they're going to be severely constrained by what that state makes possible. And the state doesn't make anything but minor modifications within the existing reality possible. If you have that revolutionary challenge outside of the state, which says that we have to push for a total transformation of society, then you have the level of, uh, of social challenge to the existing order that makes it possible to see those changes, which really do influence people's lives and improve people's lives. But there has to be a vision beyond that. Is incrementalism, which is a very centrist way of thinking, is that a form of depoliticization as well? I think so, because incrementalism, the, the funny thing about depoliticization is that uh, if you want to just have modifications within the existing world, you're not going to achieve them without that total challenge. So it's a kind of uh, self-defeating idea that unless you have that uh, broader vision, you're not even going to achieve the modifications you want. And so we really need to think on the left right now about... Uh, pairing the mobilization behind Sanders with a mobilization that's outside of the state, which goes further and will, whatever the outcome of the election, be able to continue this kind of faithfulness to the revolutionary idea. You write, as French philosopher Alain Badiou puts it, the revolutions were driven by the communist hypothesis, which says the existing world is not necessary, is not necessary for human life to be subordinated by the state and the market. Nevertheless, none of these revolutions managed to proceed through the transition to another kind of society. Is the communist hypothesis then the existing world is not necessary, that we don't have to be subordinated to the market or the state? Is that promise essentially... Star Trek without Starfleet? Absolutely not. That hypothesis has been um, uh, asserted throughout history. And the, the point that Badiou makes is that when you have a hypothesis, to prove the hypothesis, you have to go through many failed attempts. It's not just something that happens in one, at once. In mathematics, every failed attempt to prove a hypothesis provides the basis for the next attempt when you eventually can prove it. And uh, the, this idea, the communist hypothesis, that it's not necessary to be subordinated to the state and the market is not a crazy idea. It's not an idea that is beyond what we can conceive of or feel comfortable with. Uh, people believe in democracy in the United States. Democracy is self-governance. It's the idea that people can govern themselves, that they can make decisions about their own lives instead of transferring their power to this coercive, violent institution that's outside of them. And so people believe in this idea, and that, that's important to defend. And when people are supporting the Sanders campaign and saying we need a political revolution, they're saying we should have control over our own lives. That's the idea that puts the state into question. The idea that puts the market into question is that it is totally irrational to live in a society in which you have to sell your ability to work for a wage just so you can survive. Uh, that's not how it's been throughout history. We know that other arrangements are possible, and we know that it doesn't make sense, and people are calling that into question. They're not just saying that we need a redistribution of the existing wealth. They're saying the idea that there are billionaires while other people are starving, while other people are dying because they can't get medicine, is a crazy system. 
You point out that uh, you write that at, at, of the point at which the existing procedures and aims of politics have been exhausted, uh, that we're getting kind of close to that point. Uh, how close are we to that moment right now? Is that the goal of those who want depoliticization to have us exhaust all of our possibilities of democracy? I think we've been living through that moment for a long time. And that's, um, first of all, the fact that we weren't able to adequately grapple with the fact that, as I said, the revolutions made total change possible, but they didn't follow through on it successfully. And so we have to figure out how to think both of those thoughts at once, that it's still possible to change the world, but that we need to have new ideas to figure out how to do that. And the other problem is this problem that I describe in terms of the organizational form of the party. Uh, on the left in social movements, there's often an idea that we should return to old models or that we should go back to, you know, the the period of great capitalist prosperity that came after the Second World War, that we should uh, revive the old forms of the union and the political party. These are not necessarily bad things to do, but they ignore the fact that we enter, we've entered into a totally new period, uh, that we have different um, uh, uh, institutions, that we have a different historical context that we need to invent new forms of politics for. And so I think if the Sanders campaign gets limited to the idea of elections, then we're going to be locked into that cycle of depoliticization. We need to show that that mobilization can go beyond it. When you talk about harking back to this past time, what does Make America Great Again do to politics by harking back to some time when America was great? What kind of politics does that promote? Well, we I mean, we have to show that uh, there's a politics that isn't just about making America great again. We may have different kinds of reference points from the right, but uh, calling for a new deal could just call, could calling for a revival of the new deal could just lead us back to the idea of making America great again, but of choosing a different standard of greatness. Once again, that doesn't mean that some of those reforms and ideas wouldn't be uh, major uh, achievements. They would improve people's lives and they could even potentially allow for the uh, space for people to organize in better and more radical ways. But um, the idea that we can go back to a previously existing period is something that really prevents us from thinking about creating something new. And in order to have a better society, we really do have to create something new. So do you think that's a fault or a shortcoming of things, uh, people saying we should go back and have a new deal or we should go back and have a Marshall Project for this thing or that thing or the other thing? Do you see problems using those kind of frameworks for uh, politics on the left? It depends because you have to wage an ideological struggle and you have to challenge the existing ways of considering uh, politics. You have to reach people uh, who are uh, haven't yet been presented with that possibility that we can change the world. They haven't, they haven't been presented with the idea that we have the power to do that or that we could uh, achieve the powers, we could organize the powers to do that. So if talking about the New Deal, if talking about um, the fact that these uh, different kinds of policies existed in the past makes people open up to the idea that we could have this kind of change, then that can be a good thing. Uh, but if that's all we're limited to, then I think we're going to run into problems. I mean, it's premature to speculate, for example, about what a Sanders presidency would be like. Uh, but we know from 
previous examples in history that when socialist or social democratic politicians come into power, they have to manage the capitalist state. And they have to deal with the fact that capitalism is a crisis-prone system. And when you enter into a crisis, the capital is always going to push for the costs of the crisis to be transferred onto labor. Capital is always going to threaten the state with uh, a withdrawal of its resources. It's always going to say that we come first because we're the ones who uh, provide employment. We are the ones who, uh, uh, who drive growth and so on. And within the constraints of the capitalist system, they're not wrong. So if the capitalist system isn't put into question, undermined, and uh, uh, if there isn't a transformation that goes beyond the existing property relations, the uh, reform governments are not going to be able to achieve their reforms. So we have to be able to reach people, we have to be able to wage the ideological struggle, but we also have to be prepared for the fact that these changes can't happen within the existing system. Countering the communist hypothesis, which says the existing world is not necessary, you point out that many contemporary socialists, in fact, believe the world is necessary. A powerful contemporary socialist opinion declares that the state and the market are necessary and human life cannot be conceived beyond them. This is the most serious question for socialists today. It is not a debate about reformism, which under our political constraints is very difficult to define. It is a position on the necessity of the existing reality. What happens, in your opinion, to socialism when it ends the communist hypothesis and accepts that the state and market and its dominance over us is necessary? What happens when socialism quits aiming to be communist that is no longer under the thumb of market or state? Well, I think then we, the, we have a vision of socialism which is essentially just like capitalism. Uh, it's just a, a capitalism that looks a little different. And that's not enough. Uh, so we, it, it, the extent to which socialism becomes constrained to say, okay, we can have a market socialism, we'll still have the institutions of the market, but they'll be regulated in various ways, they'll coexist with collective ownership and things like that, then we don't have a vision of a society beyond capitalism. If we think that, okay, uh, socialism means seizing state power, socialism means that now we run the state and we run it in the interests of ordinary people, then you don't have that vision in which you say that people can govern themselves and people can control their own lives and people have an equal capacity for thought that allows them to make those uh, decisions and to have that control. So that's uh, a vision of a society that looks like capitalism in which you still have the idea that there's a separate coercive apparatus that rules over people. You still have the existence of a market. Uh, and when you have that, uh, you don't have a vision of another world. And as I've said, you don't have the means to achieve it. I think this debate about reformism, the problem with that is that uh, you, if reformism is just a bunch of positions, it's just like an idea that, okay, we can achieve incremental reforms, that doesn't actually address what powers we have. We have to think about uh, our organized powers and how much we can actually, in practice, challenge the existing institutions. And that's a very hard question. That's one we're going to have to confront seriously. I've heard many self-proclaimed socialists of whatever their definition of socialism is and whatever version they pursue share their concerns that a self-proclaimed democratic socialist like Bernie Sanders, who is not socialist running for president and then being uh, defamed as a socialist, is not good for socialism. Is Bernie Sanders' campaign somehow watering down what socialism is and worse, what it can be? 
I think that the key thing to recognize is the specificity of the American situation, which is that socialism has essentially been prohibited for decades, for most of the 20th century, and now that is changing. Now it's possible to have people debating socialism on TV. Now you have people uh, willingly voting for a, so, for a candidate who calls himself socialist, whatever correspondence that may have to the actual policies he uh, foresees uh, 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 achieving. That's a huge change, and that's that's something which I think is a genuine politicization. That's uh, people saying, okay, it is possible to say that this world is not necessary. It is possible to revive this idea that we can have a different kind of society. And we're not threatened by that old repressive legacy which has battered into our brains the idea that we can't change the world. So that is an opening. And that's something that socialists have to intervene in. It's not something that it makes sense to just evaluate from the outside. The important thing about politics is that it's very hard to just make predictions or to make sweeping statements about what something means, because politics is a process. Uh, when you engage in politics, you're actually transforming the situation that you're in. And so uh, if we just make predictions about who's going to win the election, what kind of policies will be implemented, and so on, that doesn't take into account the very open-ended process by which we're going to get there. And um, we have to think about the possibility of intervening and changing that process rather than just watching passively. But we can change the world, right? We can change the world uh, through voting. Yet you say that the dominant ideology that has constrained politics is elections. How do elections constrain politics? Well, elections are the idea that we can transfer our control of the world, our control over our own lives to um, a representative oligarchy. Uh, Mike Bloomberg is not the only oligarch. We have a society that's ruled by an oligarchy. D democracy is when we disrupt that oligarchy. That's when we say that, okay, the idea that a few people should control the vast majority of the population is something that we're not going to accept. And so elections have to be considered in tactical terms. We can't conceive of them as the means of politics. We have to think about to what extent does participating in an election change the range of possibilities that we're able to have for politics? That's what counts. And that means that any time you participate in elections, you have to have a political organization that's outside the elections, that's outside the existing institutions. And we, we have to seriously start building that. You talk about the dead end of oppositional politics. What happens to our politics when all it is is, I'm against whatever that person says? What happens when uh, the parameters of our politics are determined by whatever is in opposition to another's position? What, what happens when we are nothing more than just the resistance? Well, I think uh, this is a problem that we see uh, often among leftists. It's something that's really exacerbated by social media and so on. It's the idea that um, our political practice is uh, primarily through denouncing each other. And that's something that happens when people are disempowered and they don't have access to real politics. It comes when people say, okay, this idea of socialism is a sham, that you know, um, the fact that people are getting into socialism 
just means that they're into social democracy and they're not truly radical and that's not going to be a real change. That ignores the fact that there has been a real change. Um, and that's not adequate for actually intervening in that situation and counteracting the depoliticization that can constrain it. Um, we have, from the other side, people saying we have to be practical and participate in elections. And if you talk about anything else, if you talk about challenging the uh, electoral institutions, if you talk about going beyond them, if you talk about uh, questioning the um, uh, possibilities of just reform within capitalist society, you're being impractical, ultra-leftist, you're out of touch. There has to be uh, a way of engaging in a dialogue about this which isn't reducible to just denouncing each other. When we denounce each other, uh, we're not practicing politics. So what happens when the media packages this dilemma as hyper-partisanism instead of as the problem of oppositional politics? Well, the thing is, uh, we have to be partisan. And the idea that partisanship can be reduced to which political party you belong to or what name you give your political tendency is, a, is an example of depoliticization. Partisanship has to be the idea that we can make a decision about what we support, what side we're on. Are we on the side of the majority of people? Are we, are we on the side of mass organizations and democracy and self-governance and equality? Or are we on the side of the existing system? Are we on the side of uh, politicians? And, you know, I think uh, a lot of well-meaning progressive people uh, treat the election as, um, well, they, they accept the premises of the existing elect electoral system by saying, who would be the best president? Would this person be a good president? Would uh, Warren or Biden be a better president than Bernie Sanders? That is totally ignoring the actual politics that's taking place, which is that you have a grassroots mobilization saying it's possible to talk about a different kind of world again. And so when you just accept that partisanship is picking the best candidate, you're ignoring the real partisanship, which is saying, I'm on the side of regular people. I'm on the side of ordinary people who are saying that we can go beyond politicians. You write that contemporary organizations are independent of any party state and state power is not at stake. What remains at stake is the consistency of the organization's internal bureaucracy, which controls the flow of communication, the disbursement of funds, and to varying degrees dictates decisions determined by representatives who represent factional interests over political positions. In a small-scale iteration of the form of parliamentarism, putatively democratic decision-making is the domain of interest group brokerage. Are political parties, especially here in the U.S., and the way that they organize and the way they exist today, are they organized in a way that in any way accurately re represents the opinions, the views the, of the people of the United States? In the U.S., the democracy, are the organizations that make up our government in any way, in your opinion, representative of the people of the United States? Is it democracy when the groups who we choose between whoever we're going to elect in the next uh, fall's election are, are in no way reflective of the people who they are meant to serve? Well, the thing about uh, parliamentary democracy is that we associate democracy with the idea of democratic deliberation, about this situation in which people are entering into communication, arguing for their interests in like a transparent and rational way, and coming to some kind of consensus. Well, that's not how parliamentary democracy actually works. How it actually works is that you have these major institutions, interest groups, 
oligarchs and lobbyists and uh, capitalist interests that meet behind closed doors and make decisions. They, the, the, the one thing they don't want is actual deliberative democracy. They don't want to have a situation in which people can talk to each other and come to some kind of consensus. And in some ways, that's a kind of illusion that we could have that. Uh, so it, it, this whole idea is um, a way of justifying the oligarchy. And this is an idea, you know, that uh, goes to uh, another French philosopher, Jacques Rancière, who says democracy is when you, the real democracy is when you disrupt that oligarchy. Uh, and so uh, if we buy into the, this kind of parliamentary illusion, uh, we don't have real democracy. And the, one, one problem is that uh, I, I would say this is a limit of the existing conceptions of democratic socialism, is that people want to have socialist organizations that are modeled on parliamentary democracy. And so a lot of what happens is that you get all, all these different factions and socialist organizations, and people reduce their politics to which faction they belong to, when actually the, the different positions of the factions don't necessarily translate into different practices of politics. It just means that people... Uh, uh, sort of reproduce that parliamentary structure, and they don't get into creating uh, more egalitarian forms of organization and uh, uh, producing different kinds of uh, ways of relating to each other. Getting back to oppositional politics, you write, to be a member of the resistance has for some time been a meaningless proposition. Now even the faint of resistance has given way to an opportunism which is as craven as it is useless. What opportunism is that, Assad? That's the opportunism of the Democratic politicians who have used Trump as a way to represent themselves as an opposition when they're not a real opposition, because they're the ones who pave the way for Trump with their with neoliberal politics, with their statism, and with their idea that we can't do anything different. And when the political system entered into a kind of crisis, uh, a crisis that was sort of thoroughgoing, um, that meant that there, the room was open for Trump to present a new strategy to maintain the existing order. And so now Democrats are reducing the idea of opposition just to opposing Trump as an individual. And it's completely powerless. Uh, I think that unless we see a major change in uh, the practices of politics, unless we see the um, grassroots mobilization in this, around the Sanders campaign grow more and more radical and increase its mass character, we will have four more years of Trump because the Democratic politicians are completely incapable of providing an alternative. You write, it remains to be seen whether the dissent represented by Bernie Sanders will be able to continue withstanding the crushing institutional weight of his of this opportunism. What is evident, especially in light of the recent electoral fate of the Labour Party in the UK, is that if mass political organizing exhausts itself in a single campaign, socialism will be engaged in a grim struggle for survival during Trump's second term. Was Corbyn then the entire socialism campaign in England was or in Britain was socialism Corbyn and Corbyn? socialism so when he lost the entire political project of socialism was lost and in your opinion is that what you're fearing is going to be happening here with Bernie Sanders that he will become socialism and that if he loses that's the end of socialism in the United States for another few generations well I don't think the project was lost but what I think that that example represents the fact that you can have an optimistic situation a situation which looks like there's an opening uh, and then it can get shut down and we know uh, we know from seeing the way that the, pr the primaries have been going, 
We know from uh, the practice of the Democratic Party in response to this threat that they are trying very hard to shut this down and they will use any means necessary to do so. We're going to see a major increase in red baiting, a major increase in total lies and fraud. Um, I, I mean, we don't know the extent to which they're going to go to try to prevent this from happening. And they are really freaking out. I mean, they didn't expect this to happen. And um, they're in a state of total panic. And they're beginning to gather their forces to try to prevent this. Uh, and so we have to be serious about recognizing that possibility and start building something that can go beyond uh, the election uh, and acknowledge the possibility of defeat. Because if you are too optimistic, if you don't acknowledge that it's possible for us to lose, uh, every uh, minor loss, every instance of uh, a setback is going to be devastating to the longer struggle. Why are oppositional politics so attractive, bringing out huge crowds during the resistance as well as anti-Obama Tea Party rallies? Is that a form of depoliticization? And is that why it is so attractive? It's people engaging in politics in a completely depoliticized way. Exactly. I mean, what looks like hyperpoliticization is actually a kind of depoliticization. Uh, the opposition to Obama, the Tea Party, and so on, that was a defense of the existing world. It was something that, uh, I mean, it, it's not a serious opposition. It's not something which says that uh, we can put this political system into question. The accusations of Obama as being a socialist showed uh, how limited the political vision was, how limited the discourse was. Obama was clearly a neoliberal. Uh, but the idea that you could call someone like that a socialist meant that we can't even look beyond that. We can't even look to a real socialism. Now the boundaries have been pushed. Now we can talk about social democracy. That's what's happening right now. And we have to keep pushing that boundary and move towards a real politicization in which way more is possible. The, the, the scope that we can talk about politics is, is uh, opened up. Are neoliberal identitarian politics also a kind of depoliticization as well? Well, the thing about that is that uh, we have had in the United States uh, a long legacy of racism and we've had a legacy of mass movements against racism that sought to overthrow it, that sought to transform the social structure and eliminate racism. This is uh, just as important uh, as a political sequence as the socialist revolutions were. I think this is a major uh, uh, historical global and historical event in our history, the civil rights movement, the black power movement, and so on. Uh, what we're seeing now is though a lot of people have a rhetoric about racism, and we see this coming from uh, the centrist Democrats, from the Democratic establishment right now, that's the idea that you can't actually eliminate racism. You're just going to talk about racism. You want to make people uh, feel guilty, or you want to make, uh, or, or you want to just... Uh, have rhetoric that's about um, uh, about recognizing racism, that rhetoric that's about uh, talking about racism without actually eliminating racism, because eliminating racism means very broad social transformations. It means uh, providing the the capacity for racialized groups, for groups that experience racial oppression, to actually have control over their own lives, to actually live in better conditions. And the kinds of reforms that are associated with social democracy are going to increase the capacity of the vast majority of people of color to, to 
enter into politics, to enter into political struggle, and to make that change, to make that change autonomously, rather than having white people make these changes for them and speak for them and criticize each other. Uh, what we see now, uh, we see this discourse on race reduced to white people talking to each other about racism. Uh, that's a totally impoverished way of proceeding. Assad, first of all, it's a real pleasure to have you back on the show. Assad was on our show back in June 2018 to talk about his book, Mistaken Identity, Anti-Racism and the Struggle Against White Supremacy, which we picked as one of, our, one of our favorite books that we had on the show in 2018. He's been on today to talk about his Viewpoint magazine article on depoliticization. Look at that. I almost got it right that time. Assad is a founding editor of Viewpoint magazine, an investigative journal of contemporary politics, which you can find at viewpointmag.com. One last question for you, Assad. And as we always do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write, it is impossible to genuinely act within this condition of depoliticization. So let's affirm the absolute necessity of reviving and transmitting the hypothesis that the world is not necessary. Under the guidance of this hypothesis, we may begin to determine what new modes of politics are possible. So, Assad. What do you say to the person who argues it might not be the world might not be necessary, but at least it's good enough for them and it could be worse? What do you say to somebody who says, sure, the world is not necessary. It's not we don't need this world, but I'm just uh, so much more afraid of anything worse happening than anything better happening. Well, it's wrong to say that it could be worse. The reality is it will get worse. We know we have ecological catastrophe. We have the rise of xenophobia and violence all over the world. We have increasing economic inequality on a scale never seen before. We have a broken uh, system of health care that's dealing with the emergence of a, of a major virus. Uh, so uh, we know that the world is going to get worse. The question is, are we going to stop it from getting worse? Are we going to have a more rational organization of society that can deal with the threats that we face together? That's the question. And so uh, actually, if we have that uh, recognition that uh, things are not going to turn out well for us, things are not going to go right, unless we make major change, then uh, we're just giving up. Uh, that's not, that, we're, we're not even uh, going to live in comfort. We're, we, we are going to live in hell. <laughs> Assad, thank you so much for being back on our show. You know I'm going to be bugging you to have you on in the future. And uh, really great having you and your brother on in back-to-back -back weeks. Thank you so much for being on our show. And uh, thank your brother again for us next time you see him. My pleasure. All right, take care, Assad. This is Hell Live from Late Capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history on March 3rd, 1799, 221 years ago. This Tuesday, French army troops under the command of Napoleon Bonaparte, having swept through Egypt, continued their campaign against the Ottoman Empire by laying siege to the heavily fortified city of Jaffa in Palestine, where they took some four thousand Ottoman troops prisoner. When Napoleon sent messengers into the city to deliver his ultimatum demanding the city's surrender, the city's Bosnian military leader, Jazar Pasha, had the messengers beheaded. So my guess is Jazar was not too happy about the conditions of surrender. Then, four days later, on March 7th, 221 years ago this Saturday, Napoleon responded by ordering the massacre of his 4,000 Ottoman prisoners and sending his men to rape and kill their way through the city. No wonder Jazar 
beheaded the four French messengers who brought the ultimatum, give up or we will kill all 4,000 of your prisoners and rape our way through your city. It's, that's just not a good diplomatic mission statement because you're kind of revealing exactly what you're going to do. What your plan is, is killing those prisoners and doing a lot of raping. In the days that followed, the area was struck by a plague epidemic, and when the sick weakened... French soldiers moved north to attack the port city of Acre. Two weeks later, they suffered a terrible, bloody de defeat that forced Napoleon to abandon his dream of conquering Palestine and making himself emperor of the East. When Canoli assumed that locals credited the plague to Yahweh, God, Allah, but whoever was behind the plague, good on you because Napoleon was a murderous prick. In Rotten History, March 6th, 18th, 1957, 163 years ago this Friday, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in a 7-2 decision that Dred Scott, an enslaved African-American man from the state of Virginia, was not entitled to be free, even though his deceased owner, a U.S. Army surgeon, had taken him and his wife to live for four years in the state of Illinois and the Wisconsin Territory, places where slavery was illegal. So Dred's a slave, his owner moves to a free state, so slavery is illegal there, and that means Dred is now free, but the Supreme Court rules that once the slave's own former owner dies, he returns to being a slave. That's totally effed up. The Supreme Court thus overturned a series of lower court decisions which had enforced the principle that slave owners lost their right to hold people as possessions if they brought them to free states for more than brief visits and it starts to make me wonder who the hell was pushing this decision up the supreme up to the supreme court when it had been overturned over and over again shortly after the court ruling the army surgeon's widow who owned dred scott and his family signed them over to missouri state senator taylor blow an abolitionist who granted them their freedom in other words the family that supposedly owned dred scott and his family wanted him and his family to go free the lower courts wanted him to go free only the supreme court insisted he remain a slave dred scott then moved his family to st louis where he got a job as a hotel porter so everything worked out great uh, but he died of tuberculosis a few months later but he died a freed man. And to be honest, when dying, I'm not really sure how much comfort that can bring. However, his family was free, so you gotta figure Dred Scott at least found solace in his family being free. Finally in Rotten History, March 6th, 1933. One of my favorite events in history. And not that it's a happy event, it's just a weird thing. 87 years ago this Friday, Chicago Mayor Anton Cermak died in a Miami hospital after having been shot in the chest three weeks earlier by Joe Zangara, an Italian immigrant bricklayer at an outdoor public event in Miami. Cermak had been unluckily, unlucky enough to be standing next to the man Zangara supposedly intended to kill president-elect Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was making a speech from the back of his car. Zangara took aim at Roosevelt with a 32 caliber revolver, but just as he fired the gun, a woman standing next to him bumped his arm, causing the shots to hit Cermak and four other bystanders, one of whom also died. Later in police custody, Zangara said he had it in for FDR, or that woman who bumped him had it in for Cermak, because he wanted to kill all kings, presidents, and capitalists. Okay, I'm listening. But conspiracy theorists claimed that he'd killed Cermak on purpose and had been hired to do so by Frank Nitti, who was Al Capone's successor as boss of the Chicago mob. And a lot of people are always wondering, why assassinate Cermak right next to FDR? It doesn't make any sense. Well, if you want to make it look like you're trying to assassinate FDR and not Anton Cermak, it's a good way to cover it up. 
Cermak's death came two days after Roosevelt's inauguration, and one of the major streets in Chicago was renamed after him. And if you don't know where it is, you're probably not from Chicago. And if you want to see Cermak's mausoleum, it's the completely opposite side of town. It's at uh, Bohemian National Cemetery over on Pulaski and Foster. His tomb has the best inscription, I'm glad it was me and it wasn't you which was supposedly his dying words to FDR, or was he saying he was glad he led the life he did and was better than FDR's? It's kind of ambiguous, but if you're in Chicago, check it out, because that cemetery is creepy with photos embedded in tombstones of the people buried beneath, and they have these like little metal doors, and you open them up, and you look at these glass like daguerreotypes. It's a real freak scene. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Hey, Alex, who's on tomorrow's Tuesdays Live? This is Hell, streaming at 10 a.m. on thisishell.com. Tomorrow, we'll be talking with Rob Larson. He'll be back on the show to talk about his book, Bit Tyrants, The Political Economy of Silicon Valley. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcasting host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Asad Hyder, our guest this week. Make sure you check out his book, 2018 book, Mistaken Identity, Anti-Racism, The Struggle Against White Supremacy, and his writing at The Viewpoint magazine on depoliticization. Look, I know how to pronounce it. I just have to stop between the polita and cessation part. Also, thanks to Ronaldo for doing Rotten History. Thanks, Alex, for producing. Thanks, special thanks to Theron Humiston again for doing some amazing work on the show. Uh, he's going to be over here hopefully setting up our new board tonight. Maybe the show will be sounding a lot better tomorrow, or maybe we won't be on air at all. Tune in tomorrow at 10 a.m. to find out. Truly revolting radio. This is hell. Talk to you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>